Hmm. Amen. There have been a few themes that have popped up as we've studied the book of Titus together. And one of them is going to come back today. It was there last week. It'll come back today. And it's that though Jesus' ways are all good, and though he is telling the truth when he says, come to me, all who are weary, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, though both of those things are true, following Jesus is often still quite hard. All of his ways are good. Many of his ways are difficult for our weak and mortal frames to do, and some of them are very hard. And I say that because we are going to cross the threshold into chapter 3 this morning. We'll be moving from uh, particular ways of life that Jesus lays down for different people in different situations to a new section where he lays out what the Christian life ought to look like for everybody. So we'll move from talking about how it looks a little different for younger men and older men and things like that that we did the last few weeks. Now we will start getting into things that are the same no matter who we are. If we are part of God's church, things are, are expected of us. And as we do that... We land this morning on what I have wondered if might be the most difficult command in the whole book for some of us. This morning, we talk about the graciousness that we owe to our enemies, to those who disagree with us, and to government authorities, especially government authorities that we don't like. And for some of us, that's difficult anyway. I've wondered if as soon as we broach the subjects, how many of your hearts would go, oh, that's a hard one. And this year, it's even more difficult, right? In a year when you've almost certainly had a conversation with someone whose political beliefs were very different from yours, and there's a decent chance that some of those conversations got a little heated and got a little testy, now the Lord, through his word, is going to tell us about the courtesy we have to show to people in those kind of conversations. In a year when an election was contested so bitterly, and then half of the country was let down by the results. Now we'll be told to submit to and obey governing authorities. It's not going to be easy this morning. In a year when many of us watched a video that just made some of us want to vomit when a police officer entrusted with authority choked a young man for eight minutes and murdered him. We will read it now at the end of this year to submit to governing authorities and to obey them. That's not going to be easy. In a year when some governors and mayors and other leaders have used the sickness and death of this virus as a cover to bully the church. Now we're going to read about submitting to and obeying governing authorities. This is not an easy time to read this. It's not an easy time to obey these commands. And I want you to know as we go into them, there are more than just commands here for us, more than just difficult things we have to do as Christians. There is also in this text strength to obey those commands when it's not easy. So if you come to it this morning thinking, this is not going to be an easy one, I want you to know the main point of what we're going to do today is to give you strength to obey those commands, to make it easier for you to do the right thing in those situations. We look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning, and we find there the strength to act graciously toward our enemies, toward governing authorities, even those who have it out for us. Let's look at the word of the Lord this morning. The Spirit says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. 
and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing out our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The words of the Lord. We have in those words a glimpse of the incredible grace that God showed to us when we were his enemies and a look into the graciousness that Christians are to show our enemies. And through what I believe the Lord is doing is calling and preparing his people to be a gracious people. So let's look there for that this morning, the strength to be gracious because of what God has done for us. Now, the structure of this text is actually identical to the structure of last week's text. It's the same as last week. You might remember the pattern of last week's text that we talked about. Uh, there were a number of commands in the first 10 verses, right? Do all these things for Jesus was the heading there. And then in the second part of chapter 2, there was everything that Jesus has done for us, right? First, what, we've done, what we do for Jesus, and then what Jesus does for us. And it was connected by the word for. And so the logic was, we do all this stuff for him because he does all of this stuff for us. I say that because today's is structured just the same way. Let's look at it together. In verses one and two, you see, again, many commands. And if I were to try to summarize them, I think what I would say is just be gracious, right? Be submissive to rulers and authorities. It's to be gracious to them. Uh, to be ready for good works, that's to be gracious to other people. To speak evil of no one, that's to be gracious to others. So the heading there for all of that is Christians must be a gracious people. We need to be gracious to others, especially to our enemies. That's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 7 talk about the grace that God showed to us. They go through how deeply we were God's enemies, and then the great love and kindness and grace that he had for us. So, real similar structure, right? We be graceful to others, and God was graceful to us. And just like last week's text, they are connected by that word for. And so that is how we arrive at the main point today. Be gracious to your enemies, because God was graceful to you when you were his enemies. Be gracious to others, because God was graceful to you. This is the calling that God places upon every Christian. And so we will look at these things in reverse order today. We'll look at verses three through seven first, and we will just walk through and relish how very graceful God was to us, his enemies. And then we'll find their strength to walk through and obey the commands in verses one and two, ever difficult to obey. So we'll start then with verse three, with the tragic summary of the state that we were in. What were we like toward God? How did he look upon us? 
It's like a, you might call it a spiritual MRI, like it is our test results coming back and saying, how were we doing as humanity before God, before he intervened? How were you doing as a human before God, before he began to intervene in your life? And I've got to warn you, the, the result is ugly. It's not going to feel good as we walk through it. But I want to tell you the point now. The point now is to show you how very graceful God was to you and how much he loved you, even though you were in this state. So as we walk through these six qualities, if you feel like I'm beating up on you, just remember that later on we are going to get to the good stuff, how much he loved us when we were even like this. So let's look at the diagnosis of what we are like and were like. It starts with two words in verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish and, and disobedient. Both of those words assume the same thing, which is that God gave us good ways to walk in and we refuse to walk in them. Right? They emphasize different things, but they assume the same thing. We chose not to walk in God's ways. God not only created us and created this whole world around us, and created the order that the universe functions in, but knowing it better than anyone else, being the designer of life and the designer of everything, he wrote both on our hearts and in his word, his good ways that we could walk in, right? He says, here is how to do marriage right. If you want to do marriage right, here are my instructions in my word, and I've written them on your heart to love each other. This is how you do it, right? Here is how you do business right, in honesty and in wisdom and in so many other good things. He lays down all these good things. Now, you were born with these written on your heart. No one had to teach you that stealing somebody else's baby is wrong, right? You were born knowing that, and everybody is born knowing that. We may not have the details of God's ways written deeply on our hearts, but we've got the general sense of right and wrong right when we're born. And many times we know when we have done something wrong, even if we haven't been taught that. Not only that, but God has been kind enough to reveal his ways in his word down to the detail, down to how to do life right. And our choice was to take that word written on our heart and written in his word and say no thanks and run as far from it as we could. I bet everybody here could think of at least one instance in your life when you did something that you knew was wrong, right? Didn't even have to go to the Bible to know it was wrong. It was written on your heart. I should not have done that. This is just evidence that this is what we do. We're, we're disobedient and foolish. Now, that's what we've done that uses two different words to describe it because it's emphasizing two different things about it. First, foolish, that emphasizes just how not smart it was to run from God's ways, right? When the, when the maker of the universe says, here's how to do it right, and you say, no thanks, right, that's, that's not smart. And maybe you know some foolish people and you know what it's like to see somebody act foolishly and you just say, oh, like that's, it's not just that what you're doing is wrong, friend. Like that's not smart. That's not going to work out well for you. Why, why are you doing it that way? And the diagnosis God's giving you here is you were like that. And I was like that. We, we were all foolish, all of us walking in our own ways. How silly was that? when we had the good ways of God written down for us and written on our hearts. Just not smart. Disobedient emphasizes something else, not just that it wasn't smart to disobey God, but that we owed him our obedience. He was the maker of all the universe. He made us. 
And he wasn't just giving us the cheat codes for life, although he was, he was giving us commands to walk in, saying, you are mine, you belong to me, here is how I want you to live, and it will be good for you if you do it. And we said, no, I dug our heels in the ground and said, no, I am going to go after my own way. I'm going to find my own truth. I'm going to do life my own way. This is the word of God's diagnosis for all of us. And like I said, it is ugly. Now, when God lays his ways before you and puts them in your heart as well, and you insist on running the other direction away from them, you're, you're gonna get led astray, right? You're gonna, you're gonna look for something else to believe in, some other morality to live by, some other ideology to throw yourself into, perhaps some other idol to worship, like something else to do. You will look for something to lead you astray. And that is the next thing that the word says we all did. The third thing after disobedient and foolish is led astray. If you wanted to today, if you wanted to believe that the earth was flat, if you want to rebel against the idea that the earth is round and believe that it's flat, there are people out there on the internet that can convince you of that, make very strong arguments of that. If you want to believe that the Holocaust never happened, or on the flip side that Nazism is a good idea, or if you want to believe in a conspiracy theory, there are people all over the internet who would love to make very convincing arguments about these things. My point is if you want to be led astray, there are plenty of people who are happy to do it. And it's not just that fringe stuff where that's happening, it's happening everywhere. If you want to spurn God's ways and walk away from them, you'll find a group of people who are willing to lead you farther and farther from them if you're seeking it. Well, the diagnosis here is that we were seeking it and we were all led astray. This is the state we were in before God began to intervene. It says next that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And we all know what this feels like. You know what it feels like to know that you shouldn't be doing something, but you can't stop doing it, right? You know what it is like to, to look at your phone and say, I am looking at my phone too much. I'm looking at social media too much. And then just to go ahead and flick it open and look at it more anyway. And you're thinking like, I know this isn't good for me. Why do I keep doing this? Or to say, I know I shouldn't be eating this much dessert, but you just can't seem to stop doing it. I know I shouldn't be consuming this chemical or talking to this person this way or seeing this this person or something in your life that you know you shouldn't be doing, but your body just wants it and you can't help yourself and say no to it. You know that feeling and I know that feeling as well. And the wording of it here is slaves to our passions and pleasures, slaves to what our bodies want to do. That's the state that we were in before God began to intervene. Next it says, passing out our days in malice and envy. Malice is wanting bad things for other people, wanting somebody to suffer. And envy is wanting what they have. And this is how we generally were passing out our days. Some of us still passing out our days like this. Seeing people who have more than us, saying it's not fair that they have so much and wanting bad things for them and wanting what God has given to them. All right, passing out days in malice and in envy. And lastly, it says we were just living in hatred for each other, hated by others and hating one another. There is these days a self-righteous lie that circles around, a self-righteous spirit that circles around. And the spirit says something like this, those other people are so full of hate, right? 
Those people on the other side of the political aisle for me, they are so full of hate. Those people who disagree with me, they are so full of hate. And the lie, I want you to understand, the lie isn't that those other people are full of hate. I mean, it says right here, hated by others and hating one another, right? Both sides are full of hate. The lie isn't that they're full of hate. The lie is that we are not also full of hatred. Look closely at what it says, hated by others, right? So yeah, they're hateful and hating one another. That hatred infected every last one of us. Doesn't matter what your beliefs are. Doesn't matter whether you're a conservative, liberal, in the middle. We are all beset with this hatred for one another. Can you see how bad the diagnosis is, right? And Paul's point here is not to tug at your guilt strings and make you feel bad and sorry for yourself. If you're feeling bad right now because of this, that was not the point. Paul is building to a point here. The truth is we were all that bad. Some of us still are that bad. And what he's going to get into is that even when we were that bad, God's heart was full of love for us. If I were to sum up everything we just talked about in one word, I would just say enemies, God's enemies, right? We were enemies with God. And when we had that much enmity toward him, Right? When we were foolish and disobedient to him, when we were full of hatred and full of malice and full of envy, what would you expect it to say God's heart towards us was? Would you be surprised that in the very next verse, in verse four, it uses two words to describe God, goodness and loving kindness. That was his heart toward you, friend, when you were his enemy. Goodness is just goodwill towards somebody, wanting good things for them. And when it says love and kindness, it essentially means that pity that you have on someone who is in really a terrible state. You see someone suffering greatly or about to suffer greatly and your heart just breaks for them and has pity for them. In the depths of God's heart, that is what he felt for us when we were at complete enmity with him. Can can we grasp this God who watched us do all of these things and his heart was still full of love for us? Now this doesn't mean that his anger and his justice aren't real. His anger is real and it rises and falls based on what we do and whether it is satisfied or not. He is a good and just God and punishment is being stored up for all of us who refuse to walk in his ways. But Paul's point here is that that anger and that sense of justice in God's heart did not eclipse his love and goodness toward us. It did not replace his love and goodness toward us. And that his love didn't even rise and fall a little bit based on what we were doing. In the depths of his character, there is just love and he is full of it for us. And what good news that is. So he was full of goodness and loving kindness for us. And what he did was, it says he appeared and he saved us, right? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
This is essentially the same thing that we talked about last week in chapter 2, verse 11. You can see it there in 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And in both times, it just means that God was full of love for us, full of grace for us. And so what he did was he wrapped up everything he is into his son, and he sent his son down to earth as an embryo, and then a fetus, and then a baby born of a woman, which we will celebrate. We'll start singing about it next week, and we'll start preaching about it in a couple of weeks after that. Can't wait to talk about that. He grew up. He lived his whole life. He lived it perfectly, right? A spotless lamb before God. You look back on your life and think about all the things that you regret, all the things you knew were wrong that you did, right? He's the only one who looks back and doesn't regret anything that he did. And nothing he did was wrong. The only one who didn't deserve to die for his sin and the will of God his Father was to lead him up a hill called Calvary, which we have named our church after, where he was fastened to a cross, to a Roman instrument of execution and torture, where he bled and suffocated to death violently and full of gore. It almost doesn't add up. It almost doesn't make sense until we remember that he wasn't dying for his own sins, he was dying to pay for ours. Because God was so full of love for us that he would rather his own son suffer in our place. So all that justice that was poured up, right, or stored up, all of that even righteous anger of God that was stored up, we are or were, my friends, standing in front of the Hoover Dam of God's justice and wrath just built up for us because of everything we have done throughout our lives. And there will come a day when the gates of that dam will burst upon us. But what Jesus did for us is he willingly went and stood in front of that reservoir for us and let it be fully unleashed upon his own body, upon his own heart. This is what he suffered as the wrath of God was poured out upon him as he died. And Christian, don't feel bad for this. He did all this willingly because he wanted you back. If that is something that you want to receive, if you hear that and you say, okay, I get it, I do things wrong, it makes sense that God is good and just and I do not want to meet his justice and wrath when I go to meet him, how can I be forgiven, right? How can that forgiveness be extended to me? All you got to do, friend, is just look to Jesus. Trust that he is who he says he is and his promises are real. Trust him to save you. You can do that by praying right now to Jesus, calling out to him and asking him, will you forgive me? Will you save me? And if you are willing to do that in genuine heart, friend, you should call yourself a Christian. You should call yourself a child of God and be welcomed into his family. I do want to ask you, if that's you, please tell somebody. Tell the person you came with this morning. Tell me. Shoot me an email today. Let us know what God has done in your life so that we can rejoice with you and start walking with you together. This is what it means that he appeared and he saved us. And notice how he saved us. He saved us not according to works that we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, right? You see in the theme here, the salvation God gave us was not based on how well or poorly we did in life. It wasn't based on the fact that we didn't sin as bad as other people. It was based on his mercy, because his mercy for us does not change or go up and down as we do our things, just like his love. The bigger point here is that his love and mercy for us were constant and unchanging when our behavior had deserved something very, very different. 
So that's what it means when it says that he appeared and saved us and he did it not because of our righteousness, but because of his mercy. There's something else that he did as well, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God had a role in this as well. And what the Spirit did was give to us new life. This is in the second half of the verse that's on the screen. Jesus says once to a man named Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again, right? And Nicodemus is confused. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to enter into your mother's womb and be born again? How does that work? He says, no, no, no. The way it works is this. The spirit blows where it wills. And no one knows where it's going or where it's coming. But what you need is the spirit of God to give you new life so that your eyes are open to the truth and your heart desires to walk in God's ways. This is what must happen if you are to enter the kingdom of God. And it is the spirit of God that accomplishes it. It says in the second half of that verse, by the washing of regeneration, Generation, which means new birth, it's being born again, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the reason you are willing to turn around and trust in Jesus is because the Spirit of God made you new. And when you think about it, if you remove yourself from the situation here, when you've got somebody who had a choice initially, am I going to walk in God's ways or not, and deliberately chose not to walk in God's ways, right? Doesn't like God, doesn't like his ways, is running as far from God as they can. And then the Lord calls to them and says, hey, I have made a way back from you. You can come back and walk in my ways again. Well, what is that person going to do if they still don't like God in his ways? They're, they're gonna keep running from God in his ways, right? This is how our hearts work. Well, what the Spirit does is enter in and give to us a new heart, a heart that wants to obey him. A heart that says, oh, wait a minute, I have, I have sinned against a holy God. A heart that turns and comes back. This is what the Spirit of God does for us, reaches to us, and makes us new. Have you ever wondered, Christian, how you went from disliking God's ways so much to loving them so much? What the change was? A change is what we call being born again. Regeneration, the Spirit of God made your heart new. And finally, in verse 7, we see what his end game was. We see once again the same theme that we are made righteous not by what we do. We'll look at that first before we get to the end game. So that being justified by his grace, right? To be justified is to be declared righteous authoritatively, right? You might be a defendant in a courtroom one day and you will hear the hammer drop and say guilty or not guilty. And in that moment when the hammer drops, it doesn't matter whether you did it or not, right? What matters is what the judge says. And if he says guilty, you're gonna face the punishment. If he says not guilty, you're not gonna face the punishment. You can never be tried again for it. Well, that's something of what it means to be justified by grace for God with his authoritative hammer to say righteous. And with that, you are declared righteous. Doesn't matter about what you actually did, you are declared with authority to be righteous. And you can never be tried again for your sins. We are declared righteous, it says, by the grace of God, right? We didn't, we didn't earn that righteousness. He just declared us righteous. So that having happened, here's what his goal and his end game is. This is what he wanted for you all along, Christian so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, it's one thing for him to declare you righteous when you don't deserve it, right? 
It's another thing to say when we were that deep in sin, you know what I want to do? I want to make that person a king or a queen in my kingdom. You know what I want to do? I want to give that person an inheritance that they didn't deserve. Oh, can we just relish in how good God's grace is? He's going to send his son to come back for us and build his kingdom here on earth. And Christians, he has for us stored up an inheritance in that day when we get to live as kings and as queens in his coming kingdom. Did we earn any of that? No, not a little bit of it. But when we were so deep in sin and mire, his intention was to do that for us. God gave to us so much more than we deserve. And if we're going to see the point of these commands we're going to look at, we've got to relish in that together. We've got to see just how much enmity we had toward him and just how great a love that he had for us. So the point, though, so far then was that he was that good to you, even though you were that bad, right? That's the point of how I'm talking about how bad we were, because he was that good to us, even though we were that bad. Now he's going to lead into, actually, I'm going to lead into, because I'm doing it in reverse order. That is his justification. That is his reason for the commands he gives to us in one and two. He's saying we can do this stuff to others. We can be gracious to other people, because when we were God's enemies, Look how good he was to us. So if your heart isn't rejoicing right now and how good God was to you, if it's not rejoicing right now in the gospel, you won't be ready to look at hard commands like this. But if it is, if you are glowing with love for what God has done for you, these commands are going to make perfect sense and you're going to be ready for them. Let's look back now at the commands in verses 1 and 2. It says first to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities. The way it says is to Titus, remind them, and we are them, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. So that means if you are embracing what God has done for you, when, right, when you were foolish and led astray and full of hate, he was full of love for you, right? If you're embracing that, and then you see governing authorities who seem like they have it out for us, who seem like they don't like you and people like you and their policies seem designed to just frankly be filled with hatred for you and for people like you. Some people feel this, right? Hostility from governing authorities. That means the first thing we ought to think is, well, I used to be full of hatred too and, and look what God did for me. That means when we see governors and mayors and presidents and congressmen writing laws that we believe are foolish and deny God's good ways, the first thing we ought to think of is, well, I used to be really foolish too. I know what that's like. And God loved me when I was his enemy. What it means literally is obeying the laws that our governing authorities write, showing honor to them, Showing honor and obedience to police officers, to governors, to mayors, to presidents. Whether or not we agree with what they're doing, whether or not we think they have a right to write the laws that they're writing, and even if we think they have it out for us and for people like us, still in that kind of situation, showing honor, obedience, and submission to their authority. Why can we do that? Well, because when we had that same foolishness and hostility toward God, he was full of love and grace for us. We can turn around and show that to people who seem to have it out for us and seem bent on denying God's ways. Now, 
There is something of a chain of authority in this, right? If a police officer tells you to do something that's against the law, you can't do that, right? Because there is law over that police officer. And if the governor writes a law that's against federal law, well, then you can't do what the governor's telling you, right? There's a hierarchy here. And at the very top of that hierarchy is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And so we find there the one time when not only we can disobey governing authorities, but must disobey governing authorities. And that is when they tell us to disobey the king of kings who sits over it all. So this is the only time when we have the freedom and also the responsibility to not do what they tell us to do, when we would have to disobey Jesus to do what they tell us to do. Then we submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We still show as much honor and as much obedience as we can to the government, but we do not disobey Jesus. Other than that, complete obedience, complete submission, complete respect for those governing authorities. It says next, to speak evil of no one. And the literal word there is blaspheme, to blaspheme no one. Now, they didn't translate it blaspheme because most of us think of blaspheme as a religious word, right? You think of God when you think of blasphemy, and they didn't want to confuse us, so they translated it speaking evil, which is a good way to render it. When we blaspheme God, it means that we speak about God or we speak to God in a way that is beneath the reverence and dignity that he owes, right? When we speak of him in a way that implies that he's small, or that he's not the holy God that rules over creation. So using the name Jesus Christ as a curse word is a good example of blasphemy. Taking the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and making it a swear word. He says beneath the dignity of God, right? To blaspheme a person, which is what these words are talking about, is to speak to them or about them in a way that is beneath their dignity, in a way that is lower than they deserve. Usually in a way that lowers their standing in the group or in the culture. Uh, in school, we just called it cutting each other down or putting each other down, right? Saying something that shames somebody else or makes them look dumb, speaking evil against someone. And there are many forms of it in the scriptures that are talked about. But what they all have in common is they all lower the status of the person you're talking to or talking about. They shame the person that you're talking to or about. Uh, one example is gossip. Uh, gossip is when you say or hear something that lowers somebody else's status, makes them look bad. And what particularly makes it gossip is that you enjoy hearing about it or enjoy saying it. Right? You probably know what that feeling of satisfaction is when you're like, ooh, burn, right? They got that person. That enjoyment of hearing or speaking about someone in a way that lowers them down, that's the heart of gossip. The reason it's speaking evil against someone is because it lowers someone else's standing. Other ways to do it as well, slander is one. That slander is when you say something that lowers someone's standing and also is not true. What makes it slander is that it's also not true. Uh, we can also revile each other. Reviling someone is when you are so mad at somebody that you think of the meanest thing you can say about them and their mom and just fire it at them, right? This is what Jesus experienced as he was walking up to the cross and hanging from it. Jeers and insults that were designed to hurt him and to shame him. We're capable of that too, and it is blaspheming another person. And also grumbling is another way that it happens. That's when you say something that lowers somebody's standing and it comes from a place of dissatisfaction with how things fell for you, right? You wanted the promotion, 
Your boss gave the promotion to the other guy and so you say something nasty about your boss because you're just not happy with how it turned out for you. Uh, what makes it grumbling is that it comes from a heart that's dissatisfied with what you have and how things have landed for you. But what makes it speaking against someone is that it's lowering somebody else. It is beneath their dignity. All of these things in every situation should not come from the lips of Christians. When someone is reviling you, the command here is not to revile them in return. When someone's grumbling about you, the command is not to grumble about them in return. When you hear gossip and you want to join in, when someone is speaking harshly to you, the command is not to do it back to them. Christians should not be people who say things that lower the reputation of other people wrongly. There comes time when you must on occasion give true testimony, but if your heart is desiring to hurt someone as you do it, your heart isn't in the right spot. That's something of what it means to speak against others. Now, why can we obey a command like that? Well, because when you see someone do something foolish and you want to just rip them over it, or when someone slanders you and you want to lay into them over it, what's the first thing you should think? Well, I used to be full of that stuff too, right? I used to be full of hatred too, and look what God did for me. So you know what? I can be gracious to that poor soul who is saying these things about me. That's the heart of what he's getting at here. He says next, later in verse two, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle. Uh, this is just simply to speak in a way that simmers conflict down rather than in a way that stirs conflict up. Now, if you've ever been in conflict or had a heated discussion with somebody before, you know this principle. You can say the same sentence in two different ways and one way will just, you know, the bomb will go off, or you say it the other way, and you can quell the conflict down a little bit. Christians are to be people who speak in a way that quells conflicts down, that avoids quarreling, that is gentle. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We are to be the people that give the soft answers when someone gives us the harsh word. We are to be the people who say others, or see others, say things that are just not smart on Twitter and Facebook. And if we respond, we do it with gentleness and graciousness. We are not to be the ones who spread the snarky remarks and share the snarky meme thing that makes fun of someone on Facebook, to do the sorts of things that make the fighting just pile and pile more and more on top of itself. No, we are to be the people that defuse the conflict. That's the sort of conduct that is to come from Christians, for us to avoid quarreling and to be gentle. And finally, it says to show perfect courtesy toward all people, which just means to be polite. When you're talking about these things, sometimes discussions get heated and, well, you know as well as I do, you can lose your manners sometimes, right, when you're talking about this stuff with people. Well, he says here to show not just courtesy, but perfect courtesy, right, to be completely courteous toward, in every way toward people, toward all people. He's got some emphasis here, right? Full courtesy toward the full human race, all courtesy toward all people. He's saying perfectly polite in all ways. That means these exchanges, these things we talk about, when you talk about politics over the dinner table and your uncle says something crazy over Thanksgiving dinner, right? The way we respond has to be polite and courteous to them. We can't be impolite to them. Got to bust out the Emily Post manners for life and just follow everything that it says and be polite to others. So you can see the uh, 
the tie-in here, right? All together, it basically means we need to be gracious to our enemies. And the reason we can do it again is because God was graceful to us. As we close this this morning, I just want to point out one more thing. Everything that Titus says here, I'm sorry, that Paul says to Titus, that the book of Titus says, ties into Paul's main point. His main goal here was, again, to strengthen the churches of Crete, right? And the two ways that he wanted to do that was to have Titus appoint godly leaders and then teach the Christians to live the godly life, right? We talked about this a few times, right? Chapter one is all about the godly leadership. Chapters two and three are about the godly life that Christians are supposed to live. And the idea was you get healthy leaders and healthy Christians in a church and you've got a healthy church, right? The goal here is the health and prosperity of the churches, the growth at the end of the day of the churches. And so that means for the people of God to be gracious to governing authorities, and to be gracious to our enemies, that plays a part in strengthening the church. That is part of God's plan for Calvary Baptist to be a healthy, flourishing, growing church is showing graciousness to people that we disagree with, showing graciousness to the government. When the governor says, I want everybody to wear a mask, we just wear a mask and we don't worry about it, right? Part of that is just doing what they say and being gracious to them. And that means, in those moments when we aren't gracious to our enemies, in those moments where we get snarky on social media, in those moments where we argue bitterly with our family over Thanksgiving dinner, we're damaging the church when we do that. We're not being gracious to our enemies when we do that. By God's power though, we can remember what he did for us when we were his enemies. And we can walk in truth and righteousness, showing graciousness to our enemies. So my prayer is that you walk out of here today ready to do that, embracing the gospel and ready to walk in it. Let's pray together.